Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstocknt. Now, coming up on today's programme, What Lies Ahead? It's the first show of 2022, so we're going to take a step back to take a wider look at the world around us with global political and economic assessments from one of Ireland's foremost business leaders. And as investors seek out the next hot trend, we'll take a look at some of the key market sectors to watch out for in 2022. And are we already living in the metaverse? Artificial intelligence has become ingrained in our lives through communications, manufacturing, transport and healthcare. It's hard to imagine a world without it. We'll tell you what to expect in 2022. But first up today, a mix of hope and fear marks the start of 2022 as countries struggle all over to cope with the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Economies, though, are recovering well. Fears of inflation are acute, though, as central banks and governments plan their moves to tackle the thorny issue. I'm joined now by Fergal O'Rourke, who's managing partner at PwC, to discuss the economic and global political landscape which presides over us all at the moment as we start out this new year. Fergal, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on News Talk. Thanks, Mandy, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Now, PwC is operating in 157 countries, oh. so you have a good wider lens view of the prevailing climate. Look, the geopolitical landscape over all of our business and social considerations at the moment are really complex. The tectonic plates are certainly shifting. What for you are the significant geopolitical developments we should be looking out for in 2022? Well, I think, first of all, we're probably in a better place on January 2022 than we were in January 2021 uh, in terms of the economy, in terms of living with COVID. Having said all that, we probably expected to be in a better place where that uh, we now know we'll be living with COVID for quite a while. I think for me, you've obviously got the Irish dimension, what's going to happen here. The UK, still a big trading partner. Uh, you know, the, the government is in some disarray there at the moment. The US, you know, it's fair to say that Joe Biden probably will look back on 2021 as missed opportunities here and there. You've got the EU relationship now with the French election coming up and the French indeed have the presidency of the EU in uh, 2022. And I think that European dimension of a new chancellor in Germany with Olaf Schreiber, uh, Mario Draghi, the old EC warhorse uh, back in Italy and potentially then uh, uh, Macron in France. I think you see, could see a more integrationist Europe emerge over the next couple of years. Yeah, let's just stick with the EU side of it for the, for the moment because it affects us tremendously yeah. here. Um, what's your assessment of um, the EU's capacity to to sort of deal with this post-Merkel um, power situation, if you like? As you say, the, the elections are coming up in France in April of next year. It seems to be a very sort of right-winged uh, um, candidate list there. And Macron, you know, will he come out of that okay? What's your assessment of post-Merkel Europe? It, it, it's interesting because uh, she was there for so long. She was clearly the leader of Europe. But I think if Macron gets re-elected, he will seize that crown yeah. not in an aggressive way but Olaf Schreiber as well who's taken over as Chancellor he was the finance minister in Germany a noticed a noted European uh, their three-way traffic coalition it's you will see more spending in Germany and in, in Italy Mario Draghi has been around for a long time so I think you're going to see Europe 
pushing a bit more to try and uh, advance the European project. It was interesting just before Christmas, um, the EU mentioned that they were looking at raising some EU-wide taxes to pay for COVID effectively on things like CO2 emissions, on things like multinationals. So I think if, if Macron gets re-elected, I think France, Germany and Italy will look to drive the European agenda forward in, in some more integrationist way. And France in particular, they have the presidency in the first six months. Macron put a lot of store on his finance minister Bruno Le Maire in taxing the multinationals. They published a directive just before Christmas. Uh, they're now going to look to implement that so that France will, uh, Macron and, and Bruno Le Maire will be able to say, victory, we've, we're taxing the multinationals more onto the next project, which I think is, is, a, is a deeper integration of Europe in some shape or form. You mentioned at the outset that Joe Biden had his struggles with uh, bringing in his Bring Back Better plan. What implications do you think there'll be for those taxation measures uh, if that um, bill that he has and the taxation uh, agreements that he wants to introduce uh, as part of that to the OECD's plans? Well, there's two consequences, I suppose, of of the struggles uh, Joe Biden's having with one senator, Joe Manchin, uh, in getting his bill through. First of all, there's the spending part of it and already estimates are coming through that growth in the US won't be as strong in 2022 if it doesn't get passed. That is a knock-on implication for us. We're heavily dependent on US companies. If the US doesn't do as well, you know, we, we feel that chill wind a bit. The other thing, which is slightly ironic, if he doesn't get the tax bits of it through, there could be a trade war with Europe mm-hmm. because Europe rallied round on the basis that a year ago Joe Biden said we're going to bring in higher tax and multinationals. If he can't deliver that now, and it's still very much up in the air, uh, it's going to be interesting to see. Will Europe saying, "Well, well, we've done our bit. You haven't done your bit. Uh, we, we've, we've got to have something here." So, I think uh, it is in probably the world's interests and certainly Ireland's interests that President Biden has some sort of victory that he can say, "Look, we've we, we're, we're trying to boost the U.S. economy, and we're also trying to." Um, making the appropriate tax changes to bring them in line with with the global agreement that was reached there a couple of months back. So I think uh, January, there'll be a lot of machinations in January. For sure. Um, And late last year, the OECD published that blueprint for the measures on corporation tax and reporting arrangements for the EU-based taxes. Uh, Will that in any way affect our relationships with multinationals? We also saw just before Christmas, the IDA uh, published their returns, which were very healthy in terms of our relationship with uh, multinationals. Uh, we're still a very attractive place. Absolutely. And people say two things about multinationals in Ireland. They say, thank God we've got the multinationals. They've held up our, our tax break, our tax uh, take, has hugely been contributed by uh, multinationals. They employ a lot of people. And people also say we're, too, we're over-dependent on multinationals. And both statements are true. Um, if you look at it last, the year before last, 51% of our entire corporate tax take was paid by just 10 US multinational companies. So we are heavily dependent on them. But they're here for a reason. They're here because Ireland works. They're here because they know it's pro-business, it's pro-US, they can get good people, uh, all those things. And that Ireland will be nimble and agile and competitive. And uh, so I, you know, the IDA results were stellar. Given the year that's in it, they were absolutely stellar. And I expect those to continue into 2022. So will all these changes affect Ireland, the changes on, on tax and the changes on reporting? I was talking to one CEO of a big US company there a couple of months back. And he said to me, I'm relaxed about Ireland because I know at the end of the day, no matter what way it plays out, 
Ireland will be competitive and Ireland will be pro-business. And he said, I can't say the same about other European countries. So I'm not particularly worried about the OECD changes. I think, in fairness to Pascal Donoghue and the government, they played a weak hand last year very well and, and came out of it well. So, you know, if you look at the things I'm worried about over the next while, inflation would be much higher up the list than tax, for example. Yeah, and we might touch on the inflation uh, piece in a moment, but I know that PwC published a report earlier in the year uh, about the issue of talent and employment. That's still our biggest asset, isn't it, our people? It is, and yet every business leader listening to this will say it's also our biggest challenge. Uh, Right now, as I look forward into 2022, and I'm saying, you know, what are the worries for PwC or any other business? I'm not worried about the marketplace. We're booming at the moment as a business, and the economy is strong. But if I could add another 1,000 people to our 3,200 people, I'd snap them up in the morning. The issue for Ireland is we produce great talent, but we'd like a lot more of it. And every CEO I've spoken to over the last three or four months, one of the first two things on their on their agenda is how can I get more good people? How can I keep the people I have? Because you've heard about the great resignation in the US, how people are leaving their jobs. We're not immune to that here. People who've been locked up for the last year and a half are saying, particularly young people, I'd like to go travelling. I'd like to do something different. And the challenge for business is how do we keep the great people we have and how do we get more people? So we're producing lots of great people. We just need a lot more of them at the moment. Get your applications into oh, PwC. Fergal O'Rourke at PwC.com. Fergal O'Rourke at PwC.com. Please send them in. There you go. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Fergal O'Rourke, Managing Partner at PwC. Fergal, I might just turn uh, for a moment uh, closer to home. Just could you give us your assessment of our performance as an economy and how you think the Irish economy recovered in 2021? Um, as I said at the outset, probably we were we're in a much better place at the end of 2021 going into 2022 than we were at the start of it. Uh, the tax receipts have held up really well and not just corporate tax receipts from companies but VAT so people are still spending money. Spending, yeah. Income tax receipts. You know, I think the, the PUP programme, uh, all those things the government did to keep companies alive, to keep even if they had to put businesses into some form of suspended animation to keep them going. That's held up now in extremely strong tax receipts. So we go into 2022 with a smaller deficit than we thought. Uh, and with an economy that has shown itself to be incredibly resilient over the last 12 months. Now, you know, at some point, all the supports are going to fall away. We initially thought it might be the end of the first quarter. But, you know, if we're still in this position at ne- the end of next month or into March, uh, you know, will they continue? When all those supports fall away, there will be a bit of a shock to the system. And I think the trick is just that gradual easing off of them. And, and But, you know, we are in... In relative terms, we're in good shape. The economy is strong. Talking to multinationals, talking to domestic companies, uh, they're positive about 2022. Uh, Yes, there are industries. If you're in hospitality, you're probably pulling your hair out saying, you know, where do I go from here? Uh, but, But generally speaking, we're in a better place than we were a year ago. And I think the outlook, certainly for the first quarter, continues to be strong. In December, PwC published a global restructuring trends report and it showed that, as you mentioned there, the speed of recovery within some different sectors mark, you know, are, are, are just different. Could you talk us through the variance there? Um, well, it, var- it does vary from industry to industry. If you look at 
the f- top four or five technology companies in the US, they are driving the growth in the US stock market. So it is it is very concentrated. Uh, if you look at airlines, some have held up better than others. Uh, Ryanair has held up extremely well, uh, for example. But you know, I've no doubt there'll be a bit there'll be a shakeout in certain industries when we get back to the new normal. Airlines, leisure, hospitality, to a certain extent, retail as, as more and more people have moved online and won't go back again. So some of those trends we've seen over the last 18, 20 months are permanent. And, you know, I, I, I think some industries have been insulated a little bit by the support they've got for government. So I think it will be interesting to look forward in June as to the shakeout in some industries where there will be winners and losers. And then the areas like technology where th- th- nearly everybody's a winner. And some of those businesses that you mentioned there <clears throat> were, uh, who are in receipt of uh, and getting government support for, for over a year now, they're in sort of stabilise and survival mode. Yes. How do they move from that uh, with any kind of confidence to a growth mode if we're still very uncertain about where the support's going to come from or where the economy's actually going to go? Well, the first thing I'd say is the government, in fairness to them, have, have given strong signals all along about the support they will give industries. And it clearly was a, a um, an objective of the government to ensure people weren't put out of their jobs. And that, as simply as that, that was an objective. And they've achieved that objective as far as possible. I think the 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 growth that you mentioned there, it's all about the sort of careful and structured and staggered easing off of supports over the next while. A lot of consultation with industry and, and there will be losers. Some people will have been put into suspended animation knowing that they were never going to come out of it really. So I think we've got to brace ourselves. Uh, there will be losers. But I think if it's, if it's staggered, if it's done with consultation, if it's, if it's done over a, an extended period of time, I think we can get most of the economy back into a growth phase again. And the opportunities are out there. And the big issue, inflation, Fergal, where do you see that going? Um, you know, a lot of people are saying it's temporary. I, I, I don't see it. Uh, you know, we talked about talent earlier. I, I think there's wage inflation building up now. I, I, I see it right across the various industries at the moment where people are leaving jobs for significantly increased amounts. I think the next time companies are going through their annual salary cycle, there's going to be quite a bit of a bump there. It's 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 hard to see in the short term, by the short term, I mean the next six months, how that's not going to happen. And I think, you know, rising uh you get a circle about rising prices and needing rising wages and that. I think the the key um, challenge for the government and for Europe now is to kind of try and get inflation under control over the next while. We've seen increased interest rates in the UK. We're going to see increased interest rates in, in the US. And the real question, and we have no control domestically over this, is when are we going to see increased interest rates in Europe to try and put a curb on inflation? And I think once that happens, that, that will automatically put a bit of a break on inflation, but it'll also put a bit of a break on growth. And this is one of those tricky areas, just just trying to get it right. At what point do you increase interest rates, but not by enough to damage the economy, but enough enough to take a little bit of the the air out of the inflationary break or the inflationary balloon that's out there? That would be the real challenge in 2022. Yeah, Christine Lagarde certainly seems far less hawkish than yes. the US or the UK on that issue. Just finally, uh, Fergal, and it's very hard to predict what's going to happen here on the issue of Brexit, Boris. And do you see the... Um, 
the introduction of, of trust as a replacement for David Frost is a positive development for us and, and is there anything you can say with any certainty about where Brexit will go in the next no, 12 months? No, and anyone who does <laughs> doesn't know what they're talking about. But I've had the opportunity to talk to uh, diplomatic figures and politicians on both sides of the water over the last uh, couple of months. I, I You know, I, I think there is a desire to get to a landing point here. I don't think, you know, Boris Johnson ran in the last election on he'd sort Brexit out. He can't go to the next election saying, I, I, I'll get it right this time, I'll sort it out. Mm. This trust has certainly made a very positive initial noises saying we need to move beyond this and sort out the bigger issues that Europe and the UK need to sort out uh, than just the protocol. So the initial noises are good. But at the end of the day, the Tory party now is is at war with itself. I think we saw it in the vote on extending the um, the mandates for, for uh, COVID uh, uh, masks and stuff like that that is a pretext for a lot of other things and I think it's going to be a rocky two or three months the question is whether Boris Johnson will have the authority within his party to get any deal through that's not so certain so I think it's going to be fascinating if it wasn't so important it would be fascinating political viewing but it is important to us and we need to get it sorted out as soon as possible Okay I know they said that was the final question but it wasn't <laughs> uh, just if you had one piece of advice to give the government about the known unknowns which lie ahead for us what would it be uh, for 2022? Oh God I, I, I would say sort of all, do no harm I mean I think people are talking about oh this will be the year for tax cuts I don't think it is I'd love a tax cut but I don't think it's the year for tax cuts but equally I don't think it's the year for tax increases I think if the government can get through the next 12 months without harming the economy and without you know keeping businesses going a staggered reduction of supports and just do nothing to put obstacles in the way of business I think if we're here this time next year and they've done that I think we'll be in a better place again than we are now Do no harm it sounds easier (laughs) than it might look Fergal thank you very much for coming in to us today we really do appreciate your insights Thanks Mandy This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, before the break, we were talking to PwC Managing Partner in Ireland about the outlook for the global economy. And we learned that the speed and the magnitude of the recovery seems far better now than it looked at the start of the year. Joining us now to see where all the pent up investment might go is Henk Potts, who is Director of Investment Strategy for the EMEA region at Barclays Private Bank. Henk, thank you so much for joining us today here on News Talk. Great to be with you. Hank, what is your assessment of the global economy and the trends and concerns that might shape the recovery going forward? And, and we might get into the investment piece in a, in a moment, but I'm just anxious to hear your view of where you think the recovery is going. Well, as you're hearing, the speed in the economic recovery has been certainly better than anticipated. I think the recovery has been robust, but we should also acknowledge that it's been turbulent, it's been uneven. The enhanced growth trajectory that we've seen during the course of this year, of course, has been driven by a range of factors, the improving health situation, the relaxation of restrictions, the ongoing aggressive policy support, and the strength of the consumer. So we expect global growth to be somewhere in about 6%, just slightly higher than that during the course of this year. Now, to put that in some sort of context for you, that's the strongest post-recession growth rate that we've seen in more than a decade. What's more important, of course, for investors looking forward is where do we go from here? And for us, I think the economic outlook still remains positive. We think policies still remain supportive. The service sector has room to recover. Inventories need to be restocked. We also think that employment should strengthen and savings rates should normalise. And that will be positive in terms of consumption and in terms of growth prospects. 
So we're still talking about above trend growth as we look through the course of 2020 to we expect the global economy to grow somewhere around about four and a half percent next year. And one of the issue of inflation, which is something that's dominating right across the globe, what do you think the capacities of governments and indeed central banks are to, to deal with that issue comprehensively? Well, I think there's a number of factors that still suggest that actually inflation should start to ease back. Of course, we're not allowed to use the transitory word anymore, but we would expect inflation to ease back from the historically high levels that we've seen over the course of the past few months as we go through, I think, the second half of next year. If you look at the level of spare capacity in many economies still remains high compared to where we were at the start of the recession. Supply chain disruptions, should ease as restrictions are removed, and capacity increases. We'll be watching wage inflation very carefully indeed. The hope is that that should start to dissipate as labor returns back, as, as supply returns, so I say, back to the labor market. It's been particularly uh, older and younger populations that have proved to be inactive, but as the medical outlook improves, schools have reopened, follow programs, of course, have been scaled back. And there's also been an easing back of those extraordinary benefits that were put in place uh, as a result of the pandemic. That should encourage, I think, workers back into the labour force and that should try to ease some of the problems there. And perhaps longer term as well, you can point to the fact that in terms of the recovery, it's been very much focused on goods. We'd expect that to rebalance into services as we go through the course of next year. And finally, the rapid digitalisation, that ongoing investment in technology should also keep price pressures muted for some time to come. But the reality is, as we've seen during the course of this year, and you alluded to in your question, inflation has certainly been higher. It's been more ingrained than was anticipated. And that means asset purchase programs will be uh, wound down quicker. Interest rates will certainly come higher in terms of the policy liftoff. But what we're not expecting is central bankers to embark upon this overly aggressive extended rate hiking cycle And we still expect rates to settle beneath their historic averages once we finish this rate hiking cycle. So just sticking with that for a moment and in terms of policy, do you think that we can expect the European Central Bank to continue quantitative easing during the course of next year? I think we will see the European Central Bank continuing to be very accommodative. We know that uh, the PEP programme comes to an end in March, but they've indicated they'll continue with quantitative easing through the course of next year, perhaps an envelope of 180 billion euros through the course of September. And the reality is probably the European Central Bank is under less pressure than other major central banks because the expectation is that inflation will moderate at a faster rate in Europe than you see elsewhere. We've got inflation in the eurozone averaging 2.5% next year. Then as you look forward to 2023, we could see inflation perhaps back below the target level. And that gives the European Central Bank room to manoeuvre. So I think continuing to remain supportive through quantitative easing. No real sign of rate hikes coming in the eurozone. We don't think we'll, they will materialise probably until the end of 2023, perhaps even into 2024. Yes, Christine Lagarde has seemed far less hawkish than the counterparts in the US and uh, in the UK on that front. Could I just um, 
maybe touch back on that inflation piece for a second. We've all become very familiar that um, rising energy prices have been a, a big driver of of inflation. But one of the things I noticed in your report is that issue of um, carbon pricing and how that has tripled over the year. Could you just talk to me a little bit about the statistics around that and how that's also contributed? Well, I think delivering on climate targets and uh, moving to the low carbon economy certainly generates greater climate-related transition risk perhaps for all companies over the course of the next few years. Transition risk includes policy and legal, technology, market and reputational risk there. That's why, of course, investors are very much focused. Uh, has been uh, largely on the most carbon-intensive industries, sectors such as oil and gas or utilities, and will again, of course, be under more pressure to establish and meet those transition pathways to align with the new targets. But I think as well, the risk of legal action with associated costs mm. or potential payouts will climb as the potential financial losses and damage arises from climate change growth. We also think that previously less visible sectors such as agriculture, buildings and industry will be more exposed to similar risks. So as governments act to green the economy, these industries could also face additional costs for their carbon emissions, higher input costs, possible revenue declines on apathetic customers or required abatement to transition to the low carbon technologies. So I think for investors, what's important there is protecting value in portfolio. It starts with an understanding of uh, the carbon exposure, usually through carbon footprinting efforts. And thereafter, investors can assess the preparedness of companies to manage those risks in absolute terms or, or indeed relative to industry peers. But certainly going to be an important driver some of those investment decisions as we look through the course of next year. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk, and we're joined by Henk Potts, who's Director of Investment Strategy for the EMA region at Barclays Private Bank. Yeah, um, and indeed throughout 2021 on this programme, we heard and discussed a lot uh, about the ESG investment. It's obviously going to feature heavily again in 2022. Um, We're used to hearing a lot about the environmental aspect of this type of investment, but what of the other parts, the social and governance, do you think they'll become more prominent in 2022? I think they will do. Yes, we've focused though inevitably, I think with top 26 on the environmental side of things, but there are other elements as we go through this process. Remember, these were perhaps seen as a, a sad element mm. in terms of the investment community over the course of the past few years. But the reality is probably in the last 12, 18 months, it's become very mainstream. It's become integrated in terms of the investment process. And certainly our clients are not only asking, but they're demanding that we go through this process and that we screen these companies, we screen our investments, to make sure that we're getting the the best possible returns for them and reducing some of those extra risks by uh, analysing the the social and government's uh, potential impact that, that that can have in terms of, of the investments they make. The reality is I think clients are, are insisting that they understand the outcomes from their investments. It's not simply about the returns these days. Yeah, that corporate responsibility is becoming much more of a factor uh, right across the board. Just looking at the wider investment landscape, uh, Hank, if we could for a second, just how much pent-up demand is there out there? I think, listen, um, investors have had a good year during the course of, of 2021. It's been another strong year in terms of risk assets. Look at the MSCI 
uh, uh, all country world index returned 17% year to date, including dividends. So, in line with the strong results that were delivered during the course of last year, I think it's really important that in, investors um, continue to to look at the the world as it continues to play out as we emerge from this pandemic. And there's a number of rules I think that they need to keep in place um, as we go through the course of next year. So, I think what we've learned. In the aftermath of the pandemic, and will be important over the course of the next few years is the importance of being and staying invested. We know that holding cash comes at a cost in terms of the impact of inflation. That's been certainly highlighted during the course of this year, but also foregone returns. We still expect equities to deliver attractive returns over the medium to long term. I think it's important to don't try to time markets. Averaging in is a, is a good way to gain exposure to markets. The second principle, I think, is be active. I think that's going to be much more important as we look through the course of next year compared to passive. So we've seen a strong recovery, as we've been talking about since the pandemic. We'd expect a wider disbursement of performance during the course of next year, perhaps clearer winners and losers. We think probably investors get a little bit caught up in the growth versus value debate. For us, it's about sticking to quality. What does quality mean? It means fortress balance sheets, conservative capital structures, cash generation businesses, but also using that cash to reinvest back into the business to generate the same level of returns. Diversification may sound boring, but diversification is probably a third principle that we'll be talking about with clients as we look through the course of next year, whether that's across geographies, asset classes, or indeed within asset classes, but also looking beyond public markets. Private markets, we think, offer some fantastic long-term opportunities. Hedge funds can help with diversification as well. So I think there's lots of pent-up demand to answer your question in terms of investors. They're excited about the, the evolution of the global economy. They want to be invested. They need to be invested, but they think they need to be directed in specific ways as we look through the course of next year. Indeed. And as you say there, there's negative impacts for holding on to cash, particularly in this high inflation, low interest rate environment, which we're still in. Would you see that there might be more people who are, who may have never invested before might actually want to now enter the market uh, in terms of investing. And if they do, what are the first steps that someone should take? Well, yes, I think um, certainly more people are becoming uh, aware of the risk of inflation, the impact that it can have, particularly on wealth, in order to uh, preserve the purchasing power of your wealth, you need to generate a return that's equal to or preferably higher than the rate of inflation. Even a small increase in inflation expectations can do damage to wealth preservation expectations. So I think being invested is certainly one way in which, uh, and perhaps a primary way in which uh, that uh, people can look to preserve their wealth over the medium to long term. So I think they'll look at these elevated levels of inflation and say, how do I get invested? What do I need to do? And it goes back to some of those principles. Diversification, I think, is incredibly important. But finding a wealth manager who can help navigate you through the turmoil of the global economy and financial markets, I think, is incredibly important. I mean, the good news is there's so much financial information out there these days. The bad news is that there's so much financial information out there these days. So you need someone, I think, a partner, certainly if you're just starting help navigate you through the investment process in order to generate the best risk-reward terms. We see some in incredible returns from certain asset classes during the course of this year. 
but we should also think about volatility and the risk that investors are taking. So it's all about those risk-adjusted returns not simply good enough to focus on returns. Certainly information is power when it comes to uh, investment and you've you've provided us with a lot of good advice and um, thoughts for 2022 but I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there uh, for anyone who's thinking of investing or indeed entering the investment market for first uh, for the first time there's some really good advice in what Henk has just said. That's Henk Potts who's Director of Investment Strategy for the EMA region at Barclays Bank. Henk, thank you very much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Well, historically, we've welcomed the advance of technologies that have helped us with everything from backbreaking manual labour to farm work. And in this century, artificial intelligence has taken us a few more steps further in doing things like curating our Spotify lists and throwing up our Netflix choices and even vacuuming our floors. So what lies ahead for artificial intelligence in 2022? We're joined now by Ronan Furlong, who's executive director at Dublin City University Alpha Innovation Campus. Ronan, thanks very much for joining us on News Talk today. Hi, Mandy. Thanks for having me. Now, before we uh, start crystal ball gazing into what's ahead for artificial intelligence, uh, DCU Alpha has played a pivotal role in scientific research and innovation in Ireland. You want to give us a little bit about the background and history of Alpha and talk to us about some of the innovations that might have been fostered there. Dublin City University's innovation campus. It's actually based in the former Enterprise Ireland headquarters site in Glasnevin, about a kilometre south of the main academic campus. And it's it's got a long history actually under Enterprise Ireland and various other sort of research organisations in, in Irish historical context. Um, so, you know, before Enterprise Ireland, it was Olus on Bortroctala. It was actually the birthplace of various different scientific organizations, whether that's the National Standards Association of Ireland or the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, now SCI. So as I said, it's got a kind of track record of uh, industrial science and research. And the university took it over in uh, 2014, uh, just as Enterprise Ireland moved uh, their operations to East Point, where they're based now at the moment. So ever since 2014, the university has been I guess repurposing and refurbishing and, and repopulating what was a scientific and research campus to becoming an innovation campus where we, I guess pre-COVID would have had, you know, well over 80, 90 companies based there with, with maybe, you know, a thousand staff between them mm. uh, and a really interesting mix of companies. Uh, and and Ronan, just give us an idea of the type of companies that have been there. So a mix of large and small companies, so for example, Siemens Ireland HQ would be based there, uh, but also sort of companies that are spinning out of the university, early stage companies like Robotify, which was acquired a couple of weeks ago by a big ed tech firm in the US for 20 million. So, so we have the ability to cater for corporate clients, but also very early stage uh, spin out to the university and, uh, and local startups as well. So a really nice mix of innovators, uh, corporate and startups. Now, in all of those um, mix of companies, uh, I'm presuming artificial intelligence is, is part and parcel of your day-to-day work. Can you just explain to us exactly what is artificial intelligence and how might we recognise it in our lives today? Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I tend not to get too caught up on, on sort of sectoral names and, and, and new buzzwords. Essentially, artificial intelligence is software to the layperson on the street 
but it's uh, you know it's increasingly complex and capable of doing things in a much more automated and streamlined fashion than than we possibly could have imagined. And and it's it's across all facets of our lives, whether that's in the health sector, the transport sector, in the smart home sector. You mentioned automated robotic Hoovers and things like that. Uh, but, but essentially, it's it's just software either controlling pieces of hardware or software analyzing data and and deriving insights from it that are ultimately actionable. So so what do I mean by that? So um, you know, say for example, in in banking or or mortgage lending in the past, uh, you know, bankers would come to uh, decisions around your credit worthiness from a mortgage application point of view, and they would have based that across a number of criteria that they were looking at, including you know their personal knowledge of you because you might have been banking with them for 20 years. But a lot of those kind of decision-making exercises are becoming, I guess, automated through robotics process automation and the ability to crunch vast amounts of data in a really fast time frame to derive really interesting and actionable insights from that data that can ultimately uh, automate the decision or I guess clarify or, or validate the decision if you like. So that's allowing companies to expand, it's allowing companies to analyse uh, their data in a much more efficient and effective way so that's allowing them to to grow if you like um, and giving them the tools to do that but there's that ongoing push and pull between those two sides of growth against risk exposure. Um, could you talk a little bit about the governance on the development of this type of software? Yeah, so, so obviously there's, there's a huge kind of conversation going on at the moment uh, around that governance and, and in particular around the ethics. Uh, mm. Obviously everybody is familiar with you know, the, the GDPR uh, regulations in the European context, but, but ultimately you know, how, we, how we manage the data inputs into AI systems is actually an interesting ethical conversation. And even not even so much ethics, but, but just kind of human bias, if you like, mm. for good or bad. So if, if you're kind of garnering data from a particular perspective uh, and you're using that data that you've codified or set up in a certain way that reflects your biases, if you're using that data to make decisions that affect others, then you know that that's a really interesting conversation to have, and there are companies who are actively trying to smooth out that sort of natural bias and make sure that AI can reflect society as opposed to personal opinion, reflect society at large with all its nuances and diversity and um, uh, you know individual circumstances, if you like. There's a a spin-out company from DCU called Inclusio. Uh, it was actually founded by uh, a lady called Sandra Healy, who would be, who would formerly have been the the director of the DCU Center of Excellence for Diversity and Inclusion. And and what she and her colleagues are doing in Inclusio is allowing organisations to get a really good view of both the sentiments and the individual makeup and personality of their workforce. And if you think about some of the kind of global organizations around the place, they're, they're employing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And, and how do they get a, a solid understanding of 
who their workforce is, what motivates that workforce, what are the individual circumstances of, of their employees, what is the diversity within that uh, uh, company and that employment cohort, whether that's neurodiversity with people being on various parts of, of, of the spectrum and the skills that that brings with it, whether it's gender diversity, ethnicity, uh, whatever the case may be. So companies all of a sudden have access to the kind of tools and platforms that, that Inclusio are bringing on a big data perspective and on a data science and, and even things like natural language processing, which allows them as a company, allows Inclusio to do a really deep dive on who the employees of a large organization are, what's motivating them to get out of bed in the morning, what are their concerns, what are their individual domestic personal circumstances, what are their, their health issues, all of this data anonymized back to the point about the ethics of it, but crucially then it gives the large organization who employs all of these people a really solid window into what its actual culture is. Ronan, exactly. I know it's very hard to predict uh, what's going to happen in a small time frame like a year because in technology I suppose we, we tend to look at a much broader broader um, time span but what what do you think the next year is going to bring us in terms of AI development? Again I, I kind of look at it from a kind of a sectoral and I look at it from a, an enterprise level if you like I, I, I kind of see some of the applications that are emerging as opposed to necessarily the kind of societal or philosophical kind of discourse, so to speak. So, but, but just give you, to give you some examples of, of what's coming down the track, uh, and one maybe particularly close to my heart, and full disclosure, I, I've got a direct involvement in it, and it's in, the, it's in the kind of smart transport space, which again is another big area, another big meaty sector that, that we all interface with. Uh, and it's a company called Luna Systems that's developing artificial intelligence and specifically computer vision, in order to govern and control uh, where and how e-scooters are ridden, which is a really kind of hot topic at the moment, not just in an Irish context, but all across the globe. This new mode of transport has emerged uh, largely during the COVID period as people look to kind of distance themselves and, and, and kind of find healthier ways of traveling, etc. Uh, and, and what Luna is doing is, is putting artificial intelligence on these vehicles to help the vehicles understand their spatial context, to give them spatial awareness. Uh, and, and it sounds like I'm kind of talking about a scooter brain here, which, which is an interesting analogy, but not quite 100% correct. But, but the, the smart cameras that are loaded with artificial intelligence algorithms are able to... Uh, allow the scooter to know, so to speak, if it's riding on a footpath or if it's riding in the roadway, if it's parked correctly in the designated area, if there's a bunch of pedestrians in front of it and therefore it should be slowing down in the face of that. Uh, and, but as soon as you put artificial intelligence, well, in this form, uh, you know, a smart camera onto a device, all of a sudden you're, you're turning it into uh, a sensor in and of itself. And and is your ambition for okay. this is is your ambition for this um, that they would be inbuilt into scooters, or can can we as individuals buy them and and add them to something that we've already bought or purchased? For the moment, they're targeted at what's called the the shared scooter industry, which is you know the operators who go into cities like any kind of public transport agency and offer a you know a public service. 
you know, we're familiar with uh, Dublin bikes, we're familiar with Leaper bike, we're familiar with Moby uh, shared e-bikes that are on the streets of Dublin at the moment. Pretty soon we'll see uh, an e-scooter fleet by one or more operators on the streets of the city as well. So, so the offering is to, as you're, you rightly point out, the operators to help them control where and how their scooters are being ridden. But interestingly, once you have a camera as a sensor on board a fleet of light electric vehicles that are zipping around the city, uh, you've essentially created what I kind of call a mobile sensor network because the camera on the scooter is capable of perceiving and understanding much more than whether or not the scooter is on a footpath or a road or whether or not the scooter is parked correctly. Uh, you know, the scooter all of a sudden could be used to monitor road conditions. Maybe I can warn riders coming behind me of, of the danger that's there. Yeah. Or is there traffic congestion up ahead of me? All of that kind of stuff comes into play. Do we, do we talked about all of the, the positive sides of what might transpire in the next year or so uh, in terms of artificial intelligence. But obviously, uh, there's the negative side as well, um, you know, and how the advancements in technologies are gathering data belonging to us and using it in ways that are not attended. Do you think that, Ronan, um, there's more awareness within companies and business about software development? And do you see a situation arising where there'll be AI officers appointed to businesses and companies going forward to look at this issue specifically? Yeah, again, like back to my point about, you know, on one level, this is software and, uh, you know, there'll be, there'll be chief techno technology officers in every organization that are, that are looking at AI opportunities because it will pervade and it will kind of touch every facet of, of industry and society. So there isn't a company out there, in my view, and there, and there shouldn't be a government department or institution out there either that isn't looking at this and, and trying to figure out, okay, uh, how do I make my systems better? How do I make uh, my customer experience better? How do I improve my efficiency? How do I, um, you know, conceive and deploy new applications or, 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 or products or services using this kind of capability? Like, it, it genuinely is, you know, data that is, is genuinely the new oil. And AI to a large extent, are the oil rigs that are delivering it into the system. So, so that's really kind of where I'd see it. Uh, so, and there won't be a company that isn't affected by this, even though it's kind of seen as the kind of domain of really high-tech companies. Um, you know, we, we kind of take it for granted on our phones at the moment ourselves, whether it's Siri or Amazon Echo or whatever it might be. Uh, it's everywhere, uh, and, and companies would be wise to tune into it Jeff. And one final question um, Ronan you're obviously looking at the wider technology landscape in Ireland not just uh, DCU Alpha and what's happening there and uh, one of the things that, that we often talk about is that AI or software development uh, and progression in technologies goes hand in hand with networks and there's been a lot of discussion of late about how Ireland are lagging behind uh, with the National Broadband Plan. Do you think that that affects where businesses might locate themselves uh, in Ireland? I, I actually think there's a more important um, USP or unique selling point that Ireland needs to look at here and I'll, I'll, I'll tackle the networks conversation directly, but, but really this is about talent in my view. Uh, and, and it's great to see um, Science Foundation Ireland and organizations like the Insight Centre for Data Analytics and, and others 
developing what are called uh, centers for research training, specifically focused on AI and machine learning skills uh, all the way up to PhD levels. So I, I actually think Ireland's attractiveness will come down to its ability to foster talent in the AI arena. Um, in respect of, of, of the network question, uh, obviously what's going on uh, at the moment in terms of broadband is about the, I guess, the regionalization of economic development, and that will continue apace. And, and whether you know, we've backed the right horse in terms of um, uh, the technologies we're using or whether we should be all pushing this to satellite through Starlink and, and, and that kind of stuff, that will play out over the coming years. But uh, I think there's opportunities for every town and village in Ireland to accommodate AI innovations and to generate AI-related startups. Uh, and I don't think the networks will ultimately be any barrier to that. I think, I think the talent is where um, the logjam could be, and, and, and really Ireland Inc. should be absolutely focused on generating sufficient talent for those and uh, not just FDI-related investments that are coming into the country, but for our own indigenous startup base uh, to be able to kind of compete globally because this is a brand-new landscape. It's a, it's a relatively blank canvas, and, you know, Ireland can compete as strongly as anyone else in that. Well, a combination of universities working alongside and with multinationals and indeed indigenous Irish companies seems the best way to work together to foster talent for the future. It's a very interesting topic, which I'm sure we'll return to later in 2022. That's Ronan Furlong, who's the executive director of Dublin City University Alpha Innovation Campus. Ronan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We have a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with our guests today. My thanks to today's guests and to the production team of Mick McCarthy, Simon Keane with Jojo Cardoza on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day.